This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height or depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, let's bow our heads and go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're so thankful for what you have provided for us, for all that we have in Christ. Father, we have been given an infinite riches in Christ. We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. And Father, it is due to your grace and your goodness that we have these things. We have a salvation that is not based upon who we are or what we have done. We have a salvation based exclusively on who Jesus is and what he did. And Father, we are so thankful that we have this understanding of our Savior. Now, Father, as we continue to study through the Gospel of Matthew, and as we study through what is known as the Lord's Prayer, give us insight into what our Lord is teaching in this uh, model or pattern prayer and help us to understand how this applies in our own prayer life. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I just noticed that I pulled up the wrong PowerPoint for this morning. There we go. Now we'll have the right one. I almost had this going into Romans this morning. Let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, and we're going to continue our study of what we began last time. In the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus begins to give his disciples instruction on prayer. He contrasts the way they should pray with the way that many people who are operating on pagan religious assumptions pray. And some of those pagan religious assumptions had influenced even the Pharisees so that they were emphasizing prayer in a way that that impressed those around them rather than impressing God in terms of communication communication with him. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 7, Jesus said, When you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Now, Jesus is not talking about uh, uh, prayer where we continue to pray for the same request over a period of weeks, months, or even years. He's talking about people who think that just by reiterating the same prayer or the same phrase over and over and over again, that somehow saying a a rote prayer, saying a rote statement, or even praying in some sort of uh, 
mystical prayer language, which was typical among the heathen as well, the pagans of, of that time as well as today, that this somehow had an inherent spiritual value. So he's contrasting the thinking about prayer that we have in the world with God's viewpoint on prayer. Now, as we go through our study on the on the um, uh, Lord's Prayer, and when I conclude it probably next week, we'll go through and fit that, what we've learned within our general doctrine of prayer, so we understand it within the broader perspective of what the Scriptures teach about prayer. To orient you, just to read through the whole section in Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13, our Lord said, In this manner, therefore, pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now, last time as we I introduced this, we just got into the opening part of the prayer, but I want to remind you and those who were not here last week of the basic outline, the basic structure of this model prayer. It is often referred to, as I pointed out last time, as the Lord's Prayer. And if we exegete that term, some people come up with the wrong conclusion and think this is a prayer that Jesus prayed. It's not a prayer Jesus prayed because there's a uh, reference to sin, the sin of the one praying in the prayer, so it wouldn't be his prayer. But it is his prayer from the perspective that that he is the one who taught it. And that is one of the meanings of a genitival phrase. So when you have an apostrophe S on the end of a word, that's always a genitive. And there's about 25 different shades of meaning to a genitive. And so the concept of the Lord's Prayer is a concept that this is a prayer that the Lord taught. It's pointed out also that in Roman Catholic tradition, it's also referred to as the, um, the Our Father in Latin, that's the paternoster. It's also referred to by some Protestants as the model prayer, the pattern prayer, or the disciples' prayer, because this is a prayer that they were taught. But the Lord's Prayer is a fine and accurate terminology for this prayer because he is the one who gave it. And when you properly understand the genitive, which most people do, you understand that. It starts with an opening address in six, the first part of verse 9, Our Father who art in heaven. Then there are three clauses following that in the last part of verse 9 through verse 10 that are addressed to God expressing the pray, prayers, uh, the one praying regarding the worship of God and the value of his kingdom. They are expressing a desire basically for the kingdom to come. This is followed by three petitions for their own needs in verses 11 through 13, which is then followed after Jesus concludes the prayer with an explanation about forgiveness. That tells us something about the prayer, that as Jesus concludes it and then 
comments in two verses on the significance of forgiveness, what that tells us is an important aspect of this prayer is related to the doctrine of forgiveness, not just forgiveness from God, but personal forgiveness uh, of others. So we saw last time in verse 9, the prayer is addressed to God as our Father. This is something that was uh, unique in, uh, and is not seen in the Old Testament. And it is emphasized, or God's, uh, the aspect of God as our Heavenly Father is emphasized 13 times in the Sermon on the Mount. He teaches to pray our Father. This indicates a more personal relationship with God and that he is a God who exercises his authority from heaven. And then he says, hallowed be your name. And the word therefore, hallowed, is the word hagiadzo, which means to sanctify, to set apart, or to revere. Now, God's name refers to his essence or his character. God is eternal, and God is uh, God's character is eternal, and he is eternally holy. Holiness refers to t- basically two aspects of his character, and that is his righteousness and his justice, and that God is eternally righteous and just, and this never uh, increases, it never diminishes. God doesn't become more righteous. He doesn't become less righteous. He doesn't become more holy or less holy. So what the uh, what what is being emphasized here, though, is the realization among God's creatures of His of His holiness. Now this is really important because when we look back into the Old Testament, we see that both of these phrases, as I pointed out last time, "Your name" and uh, "being hallowed." Are, have an eschatological dimension. That is, they look forward to the future, and they're associated with the kingdom. Now, this is important because it sets a framework for this prayer to remember that Jesus' message at the very beginning of, of his ministry was to repent for the kingdom of heaven was at hand. The kingdom of heaven was new. It was being presented uh, to the Jewish people, this kingdom they understood from the Old Testament and that this is the kingdom that God had promised. And you have these passages that talk about God's holy name, as we see in Psalm 30, verse 4, Psalm 97, 12, and, and states, and give thanks at the remembrance of his name. We just celebrated the Lord's table, emphasizing remembrance, and that's, that's part of, uh, that, or that's an application, we might say, of Psalm 97, 12. Psalm 103, verse 1, uh, bless his holy name. The concept of bless here means to praise. So we're to praise his character. He is a, a holy God. And then Psalm 111 verse 9 says that holy and awesome is his name. This is who God is in his character. And, and the concept of his name always refers to his essence or his, his, his character. But then, with this particular verse I pointed out last time, that ha- is in the context of the of a prophecy related to the future coming of the kingdom for Israel. This is so important to understand in terms of what we're saying. For this verse reads, "And I will sanctify my great name." God says He is the one who will bring that about. 
it is a there's a future implication here that this will come about at a future time. He will sanctify his great name, which has been profaned among the nations. It was profaned among the nations because the Israelites had succumbed to idolatry. They were no longer worshiping God as God had mandated them to in the Mosaic law. They had profaned the name of God in their midst. They had blasphemed it. This brought disrespect to God's name among the nations. They did not value God. The Israelites had failed in their witness and testimony toward God. But God says in the future, the nation shall know that I am the Lord when I am hallowed in, in you before their eyes. This tells us that, that part of the uh, aspect of the arrival of the kingdom would be that the Jews would turn back to God, and by doing so and walking in obedience to him, this would sanctify in an experiential way the name of God, setting them apart. And and this fits within the context of Jesus' message. So when we think in terms of how does this prayer relate to us, in some ways it doesn't because this is a prayer that's oriented to that message at that time. But let me ask you a question. Has the kingdom yet come? No, the kingdom has not come yet. So the application for us is even though we are not uh, Jews under the Old Testament Mosaic law and we are church-age believers in the age of grace, nevertheless, we too look forward to the coming of the kingdom. And so this applies to us in that we too need to see that God's name is sanctified or hallowed are revered in our Christian life in light of the future coming of the kingdom. So in Matthew 6.10, this is brought out in these next three uh, ex- uh, expressions of the desire of the, or the next two expressions of the desire of the, of the one who is praying. Now, remember the last part of verse 9 says, hallowed be your name. This is a request that God's name will be revered or sanctified. The way it is structured in the Hebrew, in terms of the grammar, is identical to the next two requests that are that appear in verse 10. Unfortunately, the verse break breaks between the first and the second of three requests, so you lose that by looking at it in the English. But I separated it out and color-coded it for you. Uh, in, in this, uh, on this slide, the verb is indicated by this expression of a desire. In English, we have to separate out the verb uh, in order for it to make sense in English, but it's the idea of may something be done. So in the first expression, it's may your name be hallowed, and the second may your kingdom come, and the third may your will be done. And so the, you have a subject that's indicated in red there. The first, um, the first clause, it's, it's name. The second clause, the focus is on the kingdom. And in the third clause, it is on God's will. All three of these set apart in this kind of a parallel tell us that they are all focusing on the same ultimate fulfillment. It's may your name be hallowed. We saw that from the review this morning that this will take place when God establishes his kingdom upon the earth 
and the Israelites are in full obedience to him and reverencing his name. This is further expanded and reinforced in the next expression, which is, may your kingdom come. It's clearly identified there. The kingdom is not some spiritual kingdom. There are many people who believe that. They believe somehow there was a kingdom that began when Jesus first came to earth. Some believe he inaugurated the kingdom, but it's not fully here yet. This is known uh, by theologians as the already not yet view of the kingdom. It's already here, but not quite yet fully here. I do not believe that is what the Bible is teaching. What the Bible is teaching is that the Old Testament predicted a specific kind of kingdom. It was a literal, geophysical, political kingdom that would have a its center at Jerusalem as the capital of that kingdom, and that the ruler of that kingdom would be both the greater both David, the resurrected David, identified as the prince in Ezekiel, but also the greater son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would not only be the the uber ruler over Israel, but would also be ruling over uh, the entire world at that time. He would return to the earth and establish his kingdom. Now, when Jesus came at the first coming, he's offering the kingdom to Israel. They understood this from the prophecies of the Old Testament, that the Messiah would come, establish his kingdom. Unfortunately, in rabbinic theology, they focused on the glory uh, of the of the rulership of the Messiah to the exclusion of the passages that emphasized his suffering. And uh, unfortunately, they failed to note that he must suffer before he is glorified. So they missed who Jesus was when he came. They were expecting a political Messiah who would overthrow the rule and reign of Rome and establish his kingdom, not realizing that before that would happen, he would have to, he would, the Messiah would suffer and die for the sins of the world. So Jesus is coming at this initial stage of his, of his earthly ministry offering the kingdom. And so the prayer that he's teaching his disciples at this point in time in history is to pray for this kingdom to come, to pray for the spiritual subordination of the Jewish people to the authority of God in the sanctification and reverence of his name, to pray that the kingdom would come and that God's will would be accomplished on earth as it is in heaven. Heaven referring here to the third heaven, the location of the throne of God, the sovereign uh, domain of God, and that uh, on earth God's will would ultimately be done by his creatures uh, as it is in heaven. Uh, This is not fulfilled yet. This tells us that there's something wrong, that, that, that this even though people talk about, well, Jesus came to start the kingdom, it doesn't sound like like the kingdom that is described in the scripture. My good friend Tommy Ice usually says, if we're in any form of the kingdom now, we must be living in a millennial ghetto. Because this just doesn't match the descriptions of the kingdom in any way, shape, or form. So there's the prayer for the kingdom to come um, and to arrive 
And this fits with a pattern from the Old Testament. In Isaiah chapter 35, verse 4, I want you to note in these verses the emphasis on the coming of God uh, that is associated with the kingdom. In Isaiah 35, uh, verse 4, we read, I say to those who are fearful-hearted, be strong, do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. This takes place when God comes executing his justice. The word for vengeance often comes across in English as a word of some sort of personal retribution. But that's not the nuance of the word in either Hebrew or Greek. It has the idea of the execution of God's justice when it's applied to him. God will come to bring about and establish justice upon the earth. Uh, Behold, your God will come with vengeance. This takes place when Jesus Christ returns at the end of the second coming, destroys the armies of the Antichrist, destroys... uh, the Antichrist and the false prophet by sending them to the lake of fire, destroys Satan and his angels, and they are confined to the abyss for a million years before they are released for a final rebellion. So this is when this takes place. Jesus Christ comes to bring justice upon the earth. Uh, This is the recompense of God. He will come and save you. This, This isn't really talking about spiritual salvation, which we often talk about when we ask someone, are you saved, meaning are you saved from eternal damnation or eternal condemnation? Most of the time in the Old Testament, probably around 99% of the time, the word saved refers to physical deliverance from some sort of uh, traumatic situation. It's not referring to uh, eternal Deliverance. We have other words such as redemption that refer to eternal deliverance. But here it's talking about the fact that at the, at the end times when, when Jesus returns, Israel is about to be destroyed by the armies of the Antichrist and they will be physically delivered at that time. And then those who survive, uh, will go into the eternal kingdom. Isaiah 40 verses 9 and 10. It fits it, puts us within that same um, sort of framework. Uh, we read, O Zion, you who bring good tidings, get up into the high mountains of Jerusalem. You who bring good tidings, it's personalizing Zion and Jerusalem as the source of, of the good news. That's the gospel. Uh, gospel evangelion, the Greek word means good news or good tidings. Lift up your voice with strength. Lift up, be not afraid. Say, say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand. This is, again, referring to the Lord coming at the end of the tribulation period. And his arm shall rule for him. Here it is referring to his arm as a metaphor for the uh, Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, here the Messiah. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. And then Zechariah 14.5 says then, and this is, it takes place just at the time of the second coming of, of, the, of Jesus when he delivers Jerusalem and the Jews that are trapped there, and he splits the Mount of Olives, and those Jews who have survived in Jerusalem will be able to uh, evacuate the city by this uh, this um, uh, this new escape route that is opened by splitting the Mount of Olives 
And Zechariah 14.5 says, Then you shall flee through my mountain valley, for the mountain valley shall reach to Azal. We're not sure where that is, but it's in proximity to Jerusalem, uh, to the east of Jerusalem, where they would uh, head out through that split in the uh, Mount of Olives towards the Dead Sea. Yes, you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Thus the Lord my God will come and all the saints uh, with you. So this is a prayer, thy kingdom come. It is the coming of God to rescue Israel and to establish his kingdom. The, the uh, believers at this time clearly understood this. For example, we have a, a verse in Mark 15:43. Joseph of Arimathea, remember he was one, he was a Pharisee. He was one of two Pharisees that believed in Jesus as Messiah. The other was Nicodemus, and they were secret believers. We know from the Gospel of John, they didn't tell the other uh, other um, uh, Pharisees. And Joseph of Arimathea was also very wealthy, and he owned a grave that was unused, and it was his grave that was given to be used. To, for the burial of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Mark 15:43, we read, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member, that is a prominent member of the Sanhedrin, the ruling council, Jewish council in, in Judea, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God. That's just a euphemism for saying that he was a believer. He had accepted the message of Jesus as the Messiah. He was himself waiting for the kingdom of God coming and taking courage, went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, referring to the burial. So these early early disciples of Jesus during his life were characterized by this phrase, they were waiting for the kingdom. So they are praying, thy kingdom come. Secondly, they were praying, thy will be done. It's an interesting word here in the Greek. It's not the word poieo, which is the word that's normally translated to do or to make something. It's the word genomai. Uh, genomai is a word that means, uh, describes something happening or coming into existence. In the first part of the Gospel of John, we read, in the beginning was the word. And that word there is the Greek word ami, which means it was, it continually existed. But after the first four verses in the introduction of the Gospel of John, it says, and there was a man. In English, it uses that past tense of the verb to be was, both in John 1.1 and in John 1.5. But they're different words in the Greek. The first one is a me, indicating continual existence. The second word, referring to John the Baptist, is this word genomai, which says, and John came into existence. The first refers to the eternal existence of the word that is the Lord Jesus Christ who became flesh and dwelt among us. The second refers to John the Baptist who was a creature who came into existence. This is a great illustration of the difference in these two words. So here what what is being what is uh, being indicated here is this prayer that God's will will come into existence that it's not that way now. God's will is not being accomplished on the earth, but our prayer is that it will be accomplished upon the earth. And then in verse 11, we see the beginning of three petitions that are expressed. The first is an expression of dependence upon God's provision. Give us this day our daily bread. 
Uh, bread often refers to the entire spectrum of physical sustenance and nourishment, not simply literal bread or even just restricted to food, but everything that's required for uh, daily sustenance. Uh, for that which is necessary, food, water, clothing, everything necessary uh, to survive. And so there is a prayer for that. It's a contrast from the future focus of the previous three requests, which are focusing on the kingdom, and now there's sort of a shift that says, well, we're praying for the kingdom to come, and during that time all of our needs will be provided for, everything will be met, but now we need to pray for you to supply our present needs. So there's a shift from a future orientation of those first three uh, requests to a current request in these petitions, give us this day our daily bread. Uh, this is a reminder of the fact that God is the one who supplies all of our needs. We may work for our food, but ultimately it is God who provides the job. It is God who provides the market for our skills, and it is through God's provision that we have what we have uh, no matter what our physical material uh, provisions may be. Proverbs 30, verse 8 states, Remove falsehood and lies from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me. This is the request to God. Feed me with the food allotted to me. And, of course, there is an allusion here in these passages that goes back to Ezekiel, I mean Exodus, uh, which talks about God's provision of manna, that as the Jewish people, the Israelites, left Egypt, that there was no food in the wilderness, in the desert. And so God provided a miraculous food for them each and every day, and the instruction was that they were to only gather enough of this manna each day. Don't hoard it. Don't save up for tomorrow. And if they did, then it would rot overnight and there would be worms and all kinds of nastiness there. They were just to take enough each morning for their daily sustenance. And so this is a reminder here that just as God provided for the daily needs of the Israelites in the wilderness, so this is a prayer that each day God will provide the needs of the believer as he lives his life. Now, next, he prays for forgiveness. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Now, if you're like me, when you were young, perhaps you memorized the Lord's Prayer, but it well, you probably memorized the, the, the form or the version from Luke where it uses a synonym and says, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And then you might read in uh, Matthew, that the word debt is used, and you're a little confused and say, well, what does this have to do with sin? I don't, under, don't understand. And this is actually an important concept here. The word here, forgive, is the word afiemi. Forgive us our debts the first time. It's an aorist active imperative. As we forgive our debtors, it describes something we do. That's an aorist active indicative. The word forgive itself is an economic word. It is a word that means to cancel a debt. And so this economic metaphor was used in the ancient world to describe sin and forgiveness. Sin was viewed by the rabbis as a debt against God or a debt against others. 
Forgiveness was the cancellation of that debt. We studied this on Thursday night when we looked at the passage in Romans 13.8, which begins, Owe no one anything. Many times you find uh, pastors and Bible teachers who think this is expressing a financial principle. And it's not expressing a financial principle at all, as we studied on Thursday night. It uses the verb form of the same word used for debt in Matthew 6, 12. In the, on the screen, you see that the uh, Romans 13, 8 at the top has the verb form ophalo, which means to uh, be indebted or obligated. And Matthew 6, 12 at the bottom, we see the noun form for debt or obligation of aphilema. And you can see the similarity in those two words. Uh, this has been traced out by such scholars as uh, D.A. Carson in his commentary on Matthew, just focusing briefly on parts of this quote. He notes that Aramaic, which was the everyday language of the Jews at that time, used the word, the Aramaic word hova, to express the concept of debt. But it was often used in the uh, rabbinical literature in the Targums to refer to sin or transgression. He concludes by saying there's therefore no reason to take debts here in Matthew as anything other than sins here conceived as something owed God, whether sins of commission or omission. Now up here, he's citing a source by Deisman uh, in his work Biblical Studies, and this is a quote I traced down from uh, Deisman going through looking at a, a citation from Greek literature uh, that was related to a, a sanctuary of a pagan god in Asia Minor that used this term homartian ophilo, the debt of sin. I owe a debt of sin. This is the verb form. That's important because it shows that both verb form and noun form were used uh, at that time, even outside of biblical or Jewish literature, to refer to sin as a debt. And Deisman says that further, the uh, debt of sin in this passage is also very interesting. It is manifestly used like, like uh, krios, a phalo, the, uh, being, the, the uh, owing a literal debt. So sin is being thought of as a debt. This is well documented. So what that tells us is the Romans passage, oh, no man anything, is really talking about don't sin against your brother. In our passage in, in Matthew, it's saying that when it says forgive us our debts, it's talking about forgive us our sins as we forgive uh, those who have uh, debts against us. Uh, there's a forgiveness of sin that others enact toward us. This is further seen in Matthew 6, 14 and 15, where Jesus, at the end of the prayer, explains this forgiveness a little more and says, for if you forgive men their trespasses. So he's shifting from debts to trespasses in just a couple of verses showing that what he meant by debts was trespasses. The terms are used uh, synonymously there. So this indicates that we are to forgive, just as God forgives us, we are to forgive others. And that there's parallel, parallel, parallels that we're going to see in Mark 
on next Sunday morning talking about forgiveness a little more, that if we, uh, the illustration was if you were to come to the altar to worship and suddenly you re- realize that you had sinned against somebody, you were to leave everything immediately and go and ask for their forgiveness. Uh, it's important to understand that forgiveness in Scripture is not something that is given apart from a recognition of the infraction on the part of the one who has sinned. It's not just, oh, I'm going to forgive you and act like you didn't sin. There always has to be a recognition of sin. Otherwise, all you do is, especially in interpersonal uh, situations where there's conflict, all you do is bury something. You never solve a problem, and it just exacerbates, and it uh, rots like a cancer uh, over the years. There has to be a dealing with the sin problem. And then forgiveness is freely given, but it's not freely given by ignoring the problem. Then our Lord concludes by saying, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now the word temptation here is the word over here on the right, perasmos, and it has two different meanings. One is temptation in the sense of an enticement to sin, And the other is a test in terms of an external opportunity to evaluate our use of God's word. The Holy Spirit led Jesus into uh, the wilderness where he would be tested. The Holy Spirit didn't tempt Jesus, did not entice him to sin. It was the evil one, Satan, who's called the tempter there in Matthew 4.1, who is the one who is enticing Jesus to sin. So the the prayer of verse 13 is that God would not lead us into temptation, but this is in the sense of the enticement to sin. James 1.13 talks about it this way. Let no one say when he is tempted, when you are enticed to sin, as it were. It's talking about the subjective aspect of this enticement. Let no one say when he is enticed to sin, I am enticed by God, for God cannot be enticed by evil, nor does he himself entice anyone to evil. God's not going to seek to seek your failure by trying to get you to sin. That's the role of Satan and the cosmic system. James goes on to say, but each one is tempted in this sense when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. It's that which comes out of your own sin nature that lures you towards sin. And then he goes on to describe it that when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings death. Now, 1 Corinthians 10.13 is using the same word, in a slightly different sense in terms of that objective opportunity that may present itself. There's no temptation, that is, there's no external environment uh, that provides a test that you encounter that has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tested. This is not talking about internal temptation. This is talking about external testing. God will not allow you to be tested beyond what you are able, but will with the testing also make a way of escape that you may bear it. Not that you can avoid it, but that you can bear it. So Jesus says we're to pray to God, do not lead us into uh, 
temptation, that is where we will fail, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, you probably memorize this in a, from the old King James, which said, deliver us from evil. But the Greek phrase here, which is in the bottom right, is apo tu poneru, and every place else that this is used in the Gospels, it refers to Satan, not to evil as an abstract principle. So Satan, we know, is the god of this age, according to 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. He is the god of this age, the god of this world, and so he is the one who is working to seek our destruction through uh, negative temptation. And then the conclusion for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Jesus says that we sign off by in this prayer by focusing on the fact that it is God who is in control. It is he who will determine when his kingdom comes, and he has the power and the authority to establish that. And when it comes, it will be an eternal kingdom. Now, next time we'll come back and look at how Jesus comments on this and takes one element out, which is the element related to forgiveness. We'll connect that with some other things that Jesus teaches about forgiveness in other parts of the gospel, and then summarize by giving an orientation to uh, some other aspects of prayer. For this is a pattern prayer, but as I pointed out last time, it doesn't tell us everything the Scripture teaches about prayer. There's much that's left out. It is a very focused prayer that is related to the immediate circumstance of Jesus' message that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to reflect upon this prayer this morning, to be reminded that uh, you have a plan, and that plan leads to an ultimate realization of a new geopolitical uh, circumstance with the kingdom on the earth where Jesus is, is here to rule and reign. This is yet future. We still anticipate his kingdom, but we as church-age believers have a role, just as Old Testament saints do. Our role is distinct, for we will rule and reign with Jesus Christ. Today is our opportunity to to grow, to mature, to prepare for that future destiny. We pray that we would respond to the challenge of this entire message of the Sermon on the Mount to prepare for that future, uh, future time when we will rule and reign with him. Father, we anticipate the kingdom as well. We pray for those who may be here this morning who are unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Jesus said that he was the way, the truth, and the life, that no one could come to the Father except by him. He is the only way. He is the source of life. And the only way to obtain that is through faith in him, trusting in him. As, as Paul said in Acts 16, 32, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Now, Father, we ask that you would Help us to understand these principles and apply them in our prayer life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.